Happy New Year! Before we get into my chat with the fabulous Kate Lurie, who is a sex-positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous, kink, LGBTQ, and sex worker communities, Kate has a fabulous book called Open Deeply, which we talk about at length in the show. But the other things I gotta tell you about, oh, so important, because one of them is happening this week. DragCon, of course, DragCon UK, featuring the Ada Zandaton booth, which is right off the pink carpet. You'll see it pretty close to the entryway, and that's where you can buy all the fetish wear of your dreams for the first time in person since the arrival of Peter. It is none other than my darling, Ada Zandaton. And the next thing is something I'd like you to do for me, for the show, for love and country, for Lord, whatever you'd like to put in there, whatever the reason that propels you, compels you. Go and rate and review this show. Of course, a five-star review is the most sophisticated review, and as I've told you before, you're a sophisticated listener, so why hide that from the people or yourself? And then once you're done doing that, head on over to patreon.com slash craigandfriends and check out the new price tiers, also the new reward tiers, because they're one and the same. They're refreshed, they're exciting, they're new. Be a pal, a friend, a best friend, a friend with benefits. There's a few other options there, but I'll let you explore those on your own. To paraphrase Sally Struthers, for as little as a dollar, you too can be part of patreon.com slash craigandfriends, and for a dollar... You get ad-free, uncut, and early versions of these very episodes, and there's a flood of them about to come out in January, all early, all uncut, and guess what? All ad-free up on patreon.com slash craigandfriends. Then for $3, you get all of that stuff plus bonus episodes. Those include solo episodes as well as chats with friends, chats with Ada, the list goes on. For $5, you get all of that, plus you get access to the movie clubs. You can be a part of the movie clubs. That means that you can submit your comments, questions, theories, etc. January 17th, the Craig and Friends Presents Cinema Series kicks off at the Prince Charles Cinema with none other than one of my very favorite films, William Friedkin's classic To Live and Die in L.A. Following the film, a Q&A with myself and Wang Chung, who of course scored the film. Jack Hughes, you heard on the show before. Nick Feldman will be joining Jack and myself, so we have all all of Wang Chung in one room. I got to see the print that we're going to be showing last month. It's gorgeous. Uh, the sound is incredible on it. And of course, the score is one of the best scores ever made. So if you don't know it, check it out now. Listen to the score, see the movie, and then come get a ticket for the Prince Charles Cinema, January 17th, with Craig and Friends Presents To Live and Die in L.A. with Wang Chung. And now, the show. That is quite the collection of latex behind you. Yes, thank you. It uh, belongs to my partner, Ada Zanditon, who designs uh, custom fetish wear. Oh, amazing. You must run in some pretty fun circles, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, even more so to come after. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and our, our, our original plans for uh, all kind of um, wild behaviors going to be postponed to next year due to the friend arriving. But. That, but, yes, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But uh, um, looking forward to my first trip to Berlin next year, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, super fun. Yeah. My ex-husband, uh, he used to do a lot of erotic photography. And so we knew a lot of different latex designers and, and that sort of thing uh, back then. Yeah. So I, I still know a few, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you must uh, mix with some interesting folks as well. And uh, let me give you a proper introduction. Kate, you're a uh, psychotherapist, relationship counselor, and author. 
I am a sex positive psychotherapist. I've been a psychotherapist for 20 years uh, in my private life. I've been non-monogamous about that same amount of time. I'm also an art therapist and a trauma therapist. So a lot of times uh, I'll have clients that maybe are, you know, oh, and I should back up. I I focus on uh, non-monogamous kink, LGBTQ um, and sex worker community. So a lot of my clients are like, um, you know, successful poor performers, escorts, that sort of thing. So it's not uncommon for me to have a client that is like, say, a porn performer who's also kinky and non-monogamous that maybe has a trauma history and maybe has a mood disorder that needs help with their non-monogamous relationship. Like a lot of times, all my specialties I'll have in one human as a client. (laughs) There is a lot of uh, intersectionality, isn't there? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, I'm lucky my, my clients tend to be really amazing humans, very kind. Uh, you know, my work is always interesting, but the clients that come to me are also just, you know, highly intelligent, creative, wonderful people. So I, I love, uh, the work I do. And I also love the people that come to me. Um, I I don't know how many people can say that about their job, but, Mm -hmm. uh, I've been really lucky. And, and as far as the book, um, it's called open deeply, a guide to conscious, compassionate, open relationships. I've just found that, um, a couple of things. One, that a lot of times people negotiate their non-monogamous relationships just with their intellect. And they, and in that process, they sometimes suppress their emotions and their body sensations. And as a trauma therapist, a lot of my book is, is teaching a a hybrid of, of blending all of that, you know, this idea that your internal compass is a combination of your, um, your thoughts, your emotions, your body sensations running in tandem from a grounded centered place. So Mm -hmm. I'm helping people have a more, uh, you know, be more aware and more conscious with their non-monogamy. Um, I, you know, I also so want to just that- jump in there and actually say, I think a lot of the tenets that you um, write about, about integration of those faculties could be applied to anyone. And it's one of the things I really liked about the book. I'm in a non-monogamous or poly relationship, but I think one of the aims it seemed like from the intro to the book was that you wanted to sort of bridge the gap between a lot of relationship books that you'd seen before and ones that solely focused on sort of the mechanics of things. Right. Right. Well, you know, the thing is a lot of people that uh, become non-monogamous, at least the ones that I know, they tend to be again, really intelligent people. And so their intellect has always worked for them. They worked. It's the reason they're successful in their job. It's the reason they do well in life in so many areas But, you know, and, you know, so they have a tendency to lean on that heavily. And I think there might be another component. I think the non-monogamous community is, um, you know, at its best can be evolved in a lot of ways. But let's face it, when it comes to misogyny, like any community is impacted by misogyny. One One of the main tenets of misogyny is basically an idea that kind of goes like this man, logical, good woman, emotional, bad. And that gets internalized even in any gender. So even women think if I'm being logical, I'm behaving in a superior format. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so when we start to bridge all that together and learn what it is to operate uh, in a grounded place where we're using our whole emotional intellectual and 
uh, physical compass, we we start to have a better experience. And and the part of the reason I came from this place was my own journey. You know, uh, I had an uh, 11 year monogamous relationship followed by a 13 year non-monogamous relationship and marriage. And even though I was a therapist, I had no guidance within non-monogamy except for this kind of hyper logical advice that you would get. Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware of the ethical slut until much later because I started being uh, non-monogamous in 2003. I think the ethical slut came out in 1998. Mm -hmm. So it was out, but I wasn't aware of it. But frankly, even though that's an amazing book in terms of, in terms of being a one-on-one book, it really doesn't give you the blow by blow Pardon the pun. If you will. Uh, guidance. <laughs> we, we encourage the pun on Craig and Friends. <laughs> <laughs> the blow by blow guidance that you really need to be successful within non-monogamy. So even if I had it, it probably would have helped to quench, you know, help to quench any fears that I had related to um slut shaming myself or something like that, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have helped uh, navigate some of the things that I needed help with. And yeah. so I wrote this book trying to help out younger me, but frankly, a lot of the people that I know that have been non-monogamous for 20 years, I still see kind of the same patterns happening. And mm-hmm. yes, a lot of the things in my book would help anybody, regardless of their relationship model, because when people come into my practice, regardless of whether they're monogamous or non-monogamous, like one thing that they tend to do is they sit down on my sofa. And if it's two people, they lawyer, they lawyer up. That's what I call it, you know, where they present an argument and they immediately, it's like they have an invisible paralegal by their side and they start to present their argument as to why they're correct and right. Right. You know, so they're they're treating their partner as if, um, you know, their partner is an adversary. So I, from the get go, break down all of that and build up something new. Well, that's Um, one of the bits of your book uh, or the sections or approaches of your book that I really enjoyed uh, very much because so often that happens. Um, I've been in therapy sessions, you know, and there is that sense of like appealing to the judge when it really is trying to just get everything out. And then so, and then have the other person, the impartial party, help you put the yes. Legos back together in a way that works for everybody. Yeah, yeah. An- another thing that I see happen is um, I, a lot of times when people try and communicate with each other, they get really dysregulated sometimes, you know. And most of the communication models out there in the world like the Imago dialogue or nonviolent communication. Those are great models, but they don't say, oh, by the way, if you're really upset, they may not work for you. (laughs) Because when you get super upset, there's changes in your body and in your mind that um, really hamper the success of any kind of conversation. Like when you get what's called stuck on high in the high zone or stuck on low, this is trauma resiliency model talk from the trauma resiliency institute when you're in the high zone so you're having panic attacks or rage or whatever or if you're in the low zone dissociated numb etc there's changes that make the level of compassion that you have uh get compromised Mm -hmm. changes in the brain your prefrontal cortex that negotiates between reason and emotion is not working so well so your judgment is poor so with all these changes you may call your partner a cunt and then regret it the next day because your judgment is off. 
uh, you're again, that may be coupled with poor compassion. You might be dissociated a little bit. So in the morning, you don't even remember what you said, you know? And so I tried to come up with a communication model that integrated grounding all the way through. Yeah. And, um, other things uh, like hyperfixation on something, which can make something look bigger than it is, or if it's not brought up at the right time, is there, what do do you think about that? Uh, when there is something and say an incident that occurs and someone, one, one partner's anxious, maybe and the other one is more either dissociated or avoidant. And, um, is that a common thing that you see with couples? Where one person gets fixated on something? Yeah, or they 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 struggle to express the things. I was thinking about what you just said when your compassion level is altered because of being upset, angry, or perhaps a little numbed out to it. So then, perhaps I was wondering if you know if it's common to see people uh, struggle to express things that maybe they're consumed with. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of different things that happen. Um, a lot of times I'll have two people screaming for compassion, but not giving compassion, mm. you know, I thought that was a really illuminating some... part in your book, actually. Yeah. A lot of people do that. Like these, these are not mean people. These are just like normal people, just like everybody else. I, I, I was really surprised to see that when I started doing couples therapy, because you know, I've been a therapist for 10 years before I started doing couples therapy. I started doing couples therapy in 2011 and just seeing on a loop that almost all these couples were doing the same things, having the same problems. And then they would think they were unique. They'd think that they were broken, messed up because they're seeing on Instagram, these perfect couples, or even they're going to like say non-monogamous parties or whatever parties and seeing these other couples acting perfect. They, they think that they were the troubled ones when really I was seeing the same thing from almost everybody just on a loop, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, if it, if it warms anyone's heart, the problems are universal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, like a lot of the things that I talk about in my book are, are things that, um, are just so quintessential. You know, it, nothing in the book is some random thing that happens. It's all stuff that I see all the time. And, you know, a lot of times one person will catastrophize and, you know, say one person uh, verbalizes something that's upsetting to them. It was upsetting to me at the play party. You were, you were focused on this one person. You didn't check in on me enough, blah, blah, blah. And that's all they're talking about, right? They're just yeah. saying they felt a little bit left out. And then their partner will hear that and a lot of times just catastrophize and just take what is really a issue that's maybe at a two and take it to a 10 and say, I don't even know why we're trying this. I don't even know why we're trying to be non-monogamous. You can't do this. You're just doing it for me, clearly, you yeah. know, and we should just stop this. We should just be monogamous or something because you're clearly not on board. You know, that kind of thing happens all the time. And when that happens in my office, I'm always like, okay, cool your jets. I know it's scary when your partner's not totally on the same page with you, but just because they're expressing a fear or something that felt off doesn't mean that we can't work through this, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one way that people kind of fixate like you're talking about. Like yeah. a lot of times someone who's starting to fixate, they're starting to, coll- again, almost like a lawyer, they're collecting all the data of the times that their partner felt injured in some way. And using that as a pile of evidence as to why they can't 
do this or what have you. Sure. And I found in other ways too, when you mentioned intellect and everything combined with trauma history, uh, there's a protective layer and it gets confusing to be or it gets confusing to discern which is the protective part of you and which is the projecting the disaster part. Right, right. And so that that's another thing is uh, there's a lot of pieces to the part where I talk about having a conscious non-monogamous non relationship. A lot of times when I go on podcasts, a lot of the podcast hosts focus on the compassionate piece, hmm. but the conscious piece is just as important and being conscious is recognizing your triggers, noticing what you're projecting into the relationship. The fact that non-monogamy pokes at our attachment injuries way more than monogamy does. So mm -hmm. we have to be really aware of these things. Um, so for instance, if in your backstory, you've had a lot of loss, maybe your dad left when you were six without a note and you're who you thought was the love of your life in high school dropped you like a hot potato, you know, like several things have happened. You're bringing that all into non-monogamy. If you haven't worked through that stuff in, in therapy or somehow on your own, and that's going to get projected into the non-monogamous relationship. And so non-monogamy is going to be way harder, harder for you right? in comparison to someone with a secure attachment style, that sort of thing. I really like how you explored and explained all the attachment styles and how they interrelate and affect non-monogamy and relationships in general and also the pillars of uh you'll have to forgive me because i don't like to use notes but you'll know what it's called because it's your book when you talk about the pillars <laughs> <laughs> i have the right. right here but i always like to maintain eye contact even though it's through a screen um <laughs> so the pillars of a relationship is that a good um paraphrasing of it. Wait, I have the list here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I found it. The pillars of stability in a non-monogamous relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first off, going back to the different attachment styles, just keep in mind, if, if you were to read up on attachment styles, there's always four of them. And let's face it, humans are more complicated than just four styles, but mm. it does give you some benchmarks. The one, you know, the, so there's the secure attachment style, and then the other three are all different versions of an insecure attachment style. Now, if you look at the one that is the most damaged, that's the disorganized type. But not everybody with a really profound trauma history ends up showing up like a disorganized type, even though the way a disorganized type is described is someone with a massive trauma history. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know that, number one. And then number two, that whatever your attachment style is now is not set in cement. So the more you heal, you, you can shift from being, mm -hmm. say, an ambivalent type to a secure type. And yeah. if you're dating someone that's a secure type, you're more likely to start to function in a more secure way yourself, you know? So those are some things to keep in mind. And to go back to what you were saying before about logic and emotion and how oftentimes, too often, logic is seen as the superior way of handling things, whereas really the best way is an interpolation of all of them. When you talk about ingrained roles and ways we're supposed to do things and how destructive that can be uh the things that are sort of passed down to us or ingrained or we hear from other people or we sort of intuit from as you said like instagram 
stories and Instagram couples and all that stuff about what we're supposed to be. And what we're really supposed to be is sort of tuned into what we're feeling and then moving from there. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you just look at, um, this is the thing, one, one thing, um, this is a little tangential, but I have a beef with Welcome a lot to the of show. Kind of- tangential is the uh, theme. Uh, that's- <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, yeah, so I have a beef with a lot of the codependency literature, so at least some of the old literature. I hear that some of the new literature is getting better, but the old literature, like codependency no more, etc., never mentions the fact that if you're a, you know, a codependent, that a lot of your behavior may be due to cultural programming. Like if you're a woman, like I tend to use the word overgiver instead. Like if you're overgiving in a relationship, it may be that you've been culturally programmed by, you know, our patriarchal uh, cultural structure to be an overgiver in a relationship. So within non-monogamy, if um, if you're an overgiver, guess what? Uh, narcissists love you, you know, <laughs> yeah. because they can bleed you dry, right? And yeah. and and this is the case in 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 the world, but definitely in non-monogamy, it becomes problematic because if you're dating a narcissist that's looking for narcissistic fuel, and there's a lot of different types of narcissistic fuel, right? All you have to do is see Trump at a Trump rally sure. and watch him just shooting up his narcissistic supply at that rally, right? Mm-hmm. Or watch you know? someone making their partner miserable at a party, embarrassing them, etc. There's a, a whole variety of that that people see every day. Yeah, well, with that, that would be maybe a narcissist that's also sadistic, right? Sure. So he's getting that fuel from watching the suffering, right? Mm-hmm. Like because he he enjoys the suffering. Not all narcissists are sadistic like that. Sure. You know, some of them are just looking for some kind of fuel source. And of course, within non-monogamy, you have other potential lovers or partners, and that can be a fuel source. And so if you have a partner that's overgiving to the extent that they're never setting any kind of boundaries and they're saying yes, even when it's not a true yes, that is a perfect place for a narcissist to game the system, you know? Yeah. Well, and also it's for resentment to breed in the overgiver, right? Right. Right. Because the overgiver, you know, uh, tends to not realize their responsibility in it, in a sense, you know, the overgiver, their responsibility is to set boundaries and they don't tend to realize that. And so they just end up walking around with all this resentment for their partner's behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, but what I've noticed is when I talk to, especially women that are overgivers, when I talk to them about it from a sociological level, a lot of times I've seen them change in just a few weeks, mm. you know, or, mm. you know, or, a year, you know, I've seen them end up breaking up with a partner that is entitled and overtaking in the relationship and that their very ne- next partner is someone who's kind and wants a balanced relationship and all of that. So the idea that um, the codependent or the overgiver is just as injured as the the overtaker or the narcissist or however it shows up it's just not true i don't believe yeah well i think that's a good message to get out there because i think one of the problems that people have with identifying as say an anxious attachment person or codependent person is that it has this ring of shame or stink of shame to it as if you're like the weaker one and i think uh that's an interesting aspect of all this stuff too is that it can be difficult to associate yourself with those terms 
Yeah. And a lot of times it's, it's not that way at all. A lot of people that are overgivers are actually badasses, you know, right. like, um, and if you can think, if you think about the narcissist, like if you think about a narcissist that actually does have a has a, a kind of a predatory streak in the sense that they are looking for that person that will be a narcissistic fuel source, um, looking through that lens and let's think of a metaphor, like a, some kind of predator in the wild, I don't know, a tiger or a lion. Sure. If they see a, a, a little mousy, are they going to go after the mouse or like say an injured gazelle? <laughs> injured you gazelle know? every time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, right. So if they, if they can go for the big animal that they can feed on for months or, or for a long time, they will. And so a lot of times narcissists actually do go for like, like say the, um, like the, the, the nurse that's like, you know, the uh, people that are very powerful, but are givers in nature. Those that maybe have like a blind spot or something, a little chink in the armor that the narcissist can get in there and sort of chisel away at. Well, a lot, a lot of times narcissists are pe with people in helping professions. Like you'll, you'll see a lot of narcissists with therapists or nurses or, you know, people in these helping professions, because a lot of times that's just their nature. They're just a helper. They're just a giver. And, and sometimes their Achilles heel is that they give too much and they don't have the best boundaries in terms of their own self-care. So, you know, a lot of times they'll go after those really powerful people. Is there a quick tip for someone who is an overgiver, like just kind of like a small, I know it's not a, uh, an easily condensable subject. However, is there something that someone who's listening right now who might find themselves in a, that kind of position might want to just like do a checklist for or something about, uh, about that sort of thing if they find that they're feeling drained with their partner? Um, well, one thing that I'll say about overgivers that have not gotten to the point where they're starting to change their patterns is they tend to be very hard headed. They tend not to want to li listen to, you know, so part of it is finally accepting your limitations that, you know, like say if you're dating a self-entitled narcissist, that's just taking and taking and they're gaslighting you and they're doing all the quintessential things that you see in any article about narcissism First, you have to accept your limitations that you're not necessarily going to heal them with your love, you know? Right. And you have to also accept that it's important for you to start setting boundaries. One way that I, I kind of start to get them to wake up is I'll talk to them about just their life in general, because a lot of times they have a circle of friends that are all how should I say, just, just people that are around them to get support from them. And really when a window opens is when they hit a crisis and no one is there for them because mm -hmm. all their friends, that that's not the dynamic that they've set up in their life. Yeah. And when I explain to them, your life isn't going to change until, until you start building a friendship circle around you of people that where there's a balance where if you're hurting, they're there for you. And if they're, if, 
they're hurting, you're there for them, but there's that balance. And at that point, they realize that that's terrifying to them. Like to be vulnerable Hmm. and to receive help is terrifying to them. And that's why they put themselves in this strong role of helping everybody else. Right. Because if they admit that there's something other than the leader, the one that cares for everyone else, then they, then someone could fail them. Someone could reveal themselves to be less than what they think they are. Sure. And then I imagine there's also the hurdle of being the good person doing quote unquote good things, always being there, always uh, Johnny on the spot to gender it, I guess, but, uh, you know, or Johnny or Jeanette on the spot. And, um, that seems like it can be a bit of a hurdle as well. Absolutely. A lot of this has to do with identity. They have an identity that they're a particular thing, that they're the one that helps everybody else. And if they're not draining themselves dry, they tend to think that they're selfish. It's almost like, you know, like you hear about people with body dysmorphia. Mm, It's almost like a type of dysmorphia where they, even though they're giving way too much, they see themselves as selfish very right. similar to body dysmorphia, you know, where, and, and again, someone with narcissism can, will pick up on that and completely throw that back in that, in their face and say things like, you're the most selfish person I've ever met. Right. Within non-monogamy, a lot of times there's a sixth love language, but beyond the famous five, which is something like carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. So if there's anything that non-monogamous people tend to love is their freedom. And if there's a way to piss them off, is to try and control them a lot of times. And so the overgiver that's also non-monogamous tends to have an ego identity of I'm that person that will give you perfect freedom, you know? And, and of course we all deserve freedom, right? When nobody gets to own another human. So, so please don't, don't hear me wrong, but it's to the extent that again, if they're dating a narcissist, that if that narcissist is like, you're trying to control me, they will completely crumble when they're just trying to illustrate a self-care need because they're like, oh, I don't want to be the controlling one. I don't want to be the one hampering your freedom. And again, that's really easy to puppeteer to the extent that they are just not verbalizing any kind of self-care needs. That's another aspect of your book that I really enjoyed. Uh, self-care needs and expressing them. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because it's in- incredibly important and again we talked about resentment a little while ago and if you don't present your needs because you think they're too much or you think that it's a hassle or whatever it is i'm sure there's a million reasons why people don't do it that can lead to just as much trouble as someone who's actively deliberately harassing essentially and they emotionally yes and then we paused because there was a technical problem. But now, while there's a technical problem, you have the advantage because you have the opportunity to go over to patreon.com slash Friends. See which price tier works best for you. Become a pal, a friend, a best friend, a friend with benefits. Whatever level of intimacy works for you. And we're so close to having this technical problem solved that I might as well remind you to go rate and review this show. Now, look, the listeners get to experience your voice in even higher quality. And what a delight that is for them. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that. That's okay. Um, Technic- technical uh, uh, glitches are the hallmark of a Zoom recording. So we're just being traditional. <laughs> and the one aspect. Alrighty. Uh, let's, <laughs> this is so much better. Okay. Let's see. Where were we? So um, let's think, see. We were talking about. Oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, overgivers and uh, and uh, all that kind of stuff. I guess we could pivot now anyway. Yeah. Narcissism. And there's so mm-hmm. much. There's so much to talk about with narcissism, isn't there? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's it's one of those things where I I try and talk about in my book, kind of the balance between giving your partner freedom and your own freedom, mm-hmm. while also looking at um, taking care of self-care needs of your partners or yourself, right? And a lot of times it seems like I hear people not consciously talking about this and they are usually leaning on one or the other. They're either fighting to have complete freedom mm-hmm. and in the process kind of negating their partner's self, you know, self-care needs or they're they're learning they're leaning on care in one way or the direct, or the other. And I, I think in most relationships, if you think about two people, and the reason I think the reason I talk in that dyad is because clients come into me to, um, when clients come into my office, regardless of whether they have a quad or a triad at home, uh, they come in as two people, right? And so those two people, they have a tendency to operate in a certain way. And I'm always trying to get clients to get to the point of realizing that within it, uh, when it comes to two people, there's always the the couplehood and then there's you as an independent person and there's the other person as an independent person. And all three circles, if you think of them as three circles, are important. So a lot of times there's one person that's focused on the couplehood. Mm-hmm. And if they were to win all the time, it would be an enmeshed relationship. Meanwhile, the other person, there's always one person that focuses more on independence. And if they went all the time, there would be no intimacy in the relationship. So they both serve a role in the relationship. Sure. You know, and so when you're able to balance that out and um, then you start to operate better within any relationship model that you have. But a lot of times uh, within those two people, they kind of think that the other person is the problem. (laughs) So the person that wants independence a lot of times feels like, you know, that their partner can't do non-monogamy, you know, because they're wanting complete freedom and, mm-hmm. and all of that. And the person that is focused on the couple is like, we have no intimacy. You've never read a book on couple, you know, on couples therapy or anything like this. You don't understand what it is to have a partnership, you know, that kind of thing. And they think the other person is a problem when really they're both playing an important role. Yeah. Sort of balancing each other out. Yeah. Ideally. Ideally. Like if, if well, they, I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they started to realize the role that they served and the benefit of it, they could start to admire that in their partner more or at least appreciate it rather than regarding their partner as the problem. Right. I mean, if both cooked and no one cleaned, it'd be kind of a difficult situation spiritually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the uh, passages in there as well where you talk about, um, and I, don't, I can't remember the chapter offhand, but it was about uh, people feeling um, well, disrespected and disempowered and how I think this ties back to also when you don't voice your needs, these things can grow and grow and grow and sort of balloon out until there's like a sort of a, a running commentary almost with people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, a lot of times people come into my office and they actually are feeling disempowered, but they won't use that language. A lot of times they'll come in, sit on my sofa, and they'll say, I am so jealous 
And I don't know why I'm so horrible at polyamory. And I am just a train wreck, especially my individual clients, mm -hmm. you know, that can, they don't have a partner sitting next <laughs> to them going, yeah, you're right. You know, uh, <laughs> so they'll come in as an individual and they'll be in the shame spiral uh, saying that they're just jealous and they're just failing at, at polyamory and all that. And when I always unpack that word jealousy, because inside of jealousy, it's, it's a complex emotion. So you have to break it down or else you could be making some wildly incorrect assumptions about what's really going on with that person. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first thing you have to do is break it down. And a lot of times when I unpack the jealousy suitcase, I'll either find a lot of other emotions or I'll find out that it's actually not jealousy, but something else like feeling disrespected. Mm -hmm. So people will give me an example. You know, we were at the play party and we had a rule that we would check in once an hour and we had a rule that we would spend most of the time together, although it's you know perfectly OK to to go off into our other corners. And my partner just didn't do anything like that. You know, my partner just did not check in with me, et cetera, and so on. Um, and they'll just be like, I'm just so, so jealous. I'm just a failure at this, you know? Um, and oh, by the way, I shouldn't be using the word rule. That's too heavy handed. Let's, you know, they have some guidelines. They have some relationship agreements, um, you know, and, and I'll say to them, it doesn't sound like you're jealous. It sounds like you feel disrespected, like that you just listed a whole bunch of relationship agreements that you have. And, uh, you know, a lot of those are violated. So it sounds like you're upset because you feel disrespected. Right. And then, you know, and then you'll just watch them kind of like <laughs> all of a sudden their shoulders go back <laughs> and their posture gets better, you know, like on a dime. Um, so that happens a lot of times. Yeah. Um, you know, um, or, and a lot of times people confuse envy and jealousy, which are two different things, mm -hmm. you know. So a lot of times you'll have someone that feels again they're they're saying oh i'm so jealous when if you think about it, jealousy usually has to do with fearing that you're going to lose your partner or that someone else is better and is going to take your partner away that that sort of thing whereas envy usually not always is a much lighter emotion in the sense that it might be you know your partner may come back from a threesome and you're just pissy <laughs> and you think you're feeling jealousy right right when really when really, when you start to unpack it, you realize that you just haven't had a threesome yourself. Yeah. And and that's something you would like for yourself, too. Right. You know? Which, so they, which they'd probably be into, but it's like you're thinking this other thing, which is aggressive in nature. It's sort of like, I didn't get one. Where's mine? Right, right. And so your partner may think you're jealous and think that you're just being possessive and, and, and like trying to control them. And it could become this huge argument just because what's really going on hasn't been delineated, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> now, to get into your history a bit, we talked a little bit before about it. Uh, it's in the book, but if you'd like to uh, just uh, illustrate when you first delved into the waters of non-monogamy. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I had had an 11-year monogamous relationship before that. Um, and so... Basically, I came out to Los Angeles in 2002. I met my partner that would be uh, would be my partner and husband for 13 years uh, in 2003, and he was kind of this wild Los Angeles artist type, you know. 
and had had a very wild, adventurous life all over <laughs> the globe. And here I was. Now, now my family, they're Canadians and very, very progressive, liberal, all that kind of thing. Grandpa got a PhD in educational psych and had different jobs, but ended up getting a job uh, heading the educational psych department at the University of Alabama. So due to certain factors, when my mom got a divorce, I ended up in Alabama, was raised in Alabama. So even so I am everything that I am is in reaction to Alabama. I am not a Southern girl but right. at all, not even close, uh, you know, uh, but long story short, you know, there's a lot of things I had not been exposed to. Mm. And, you know, uh, Richard, the my artist, uh, boyfriend later husband and now you know ex-spouse at the at the time he just scooped me off of the bus basically right as soon as i landed in la he's like i'm scooping her off the bus you know and so at the time i had been you know i was working three different jobs i was in graduate school i was working with kids that had been sexually abused so when i came home i was like tapped out and i remember one day i came home and we were staying in this little bungalow apartment behind the main house and i was just ready for my cuddle time at the end of the day after a really rough day and i came in and he was in front of the computer behind him there was this gal who was smiling out at us you know legs spread provocatively pose and he was grinning at me and she was grinning at me and i was like what the hell is about to happen <laughs> and this is a guy that i very clearly very quickly learned was a guy that could make things happen <laughs> that sounded impossible yeah which i give other examples of that later on if you would like to hear oh i always want to hear <laughs> the, uh, the feats of uh, magic and uh, daring do <laughs> <laughs> All righty. I'd, I'd be happy to tell you. Uh, but he basically said, you know, I've been talking to my friend Sadie Allison. She's a sex educator. And I told her that, you know, I, I, you know, that I'm in love with Kate and that I don't want to cheat on her like I've always cheated on other people. And she said, well, why don't you join the swing lifestyle? Now, <laughs> instantly in that moment, this image came into my head. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, this is 2003. This is a long time ago. Sure. I, I had this image immediately of this orange van with green shag carpet, a guy with kind of the 70s shirt that's open mm -hmm. and a thick gold chain. <laughs> He's got a hairy chest. Like I can see him. Yeah. He's his wife is behind him inside the back of the van, kind of looking downtrodden and controlled. Yeah. And he's in there and he's like whispering me into the van. <laughs> and I'm like immediately like going, are you insane? Like only creepy people swing all of this kind of stuff. I'm having this uh, immediate negative reaction. And he's like, Kate, it's not like that. And he's kind of explaining it to me. He's like, we don't have to do anything you don't want to. Why don't we just meet some cool people, go out to dinner and just play it by ear. I prioritize you. It's going to be okay. You know? Yeah. And at the time I was just thinking, this is going to ruin my career. You know, other therapists are going to find out, you know, my career is going to be ruined. My mom will find, find out. I, you know, I was really terrified. And here I am now, all this time later, you know, and now I'm a psychotherapist that helps other people that are non-monogamous. And, yeah. you know, it's like all, almost all my friends are non-monogamous mm -hmm. and all of that. So I've come from, you know, a, <laughs> it's been a long way from that moment where i was terrified when it was first revealed to me yeah and it shows that in less than 20 years you can you know completely end up at a totally different juncture than where you were at 
and speaks yeah. to the, speaks of the fluidity of the the mind and of our approach to life. Yeah, well, I, I remember even after a year of attempting this, and we were on a website that did not work for us. We, were, <laughs> I don't know what it's like now, but at the time we were on Adult Friend Finder, and it was a train wreck for us. You know, like it was not working for us, mm-hmm. and um, it, it works for other people, but it was not the right site for us. And I remember saying to him, uh, you know, if we could just go to a party, I think I could turn this around. If we mm-hmm. could just meet people in person. And he's like, why would that make a difference? And I'm like, just trust me. I think I can turn it around. Because I was pretty confident of about my own abilities <laughs> to, <laughs> to, attract, to attract people. And uh, so we went to this dive bar. Mm-hmm. It was like a, it was a swinger takeover dive bar. And at that point, I still had some misconceptions in my head about what women in the lifestyle were and all that. Mm -hmm. But I walked in and it was just like all these amazing women that were just like happy and beautiful and dressed in these amazing outfits and completely in their power. And then the guys were just kind of like being polite and kind of sit seated back very very much letting women the women run the show and that it was almost instantaneous just Mm -hmm. as instantaneous as the van was where it's just like i was like wow this is completely different than what i thought like these women are in their power and so i started chatting with them and then richard pointed out this one couple and he said this is the kind of couple that i wish you know that that we could pair up with and it was just this ridiculously gorgeous couple um, and sexy and just having a great time and laughing. He went to the bathroom and when he came out, I was dancing with the wife around the <laughs> stripper pole, you know, and he was like, what, 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 what? You know? and uh, so and we ended up going to their hotel room. They had, you know, they had kids, so they got a hotel room, even though they live in L.A. And uh, so. Side note, Richard had this ongoing joke. If he saw somebody that looked like a celebrity, but clearly wasn't, Mm -hmm. he'd be like, oh, look, it's Robert Downey Jr. Ha ha ha. When it clearly wasn't Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. And so uh, and I'm not going to reveal who this person is. I'm just going to call him Bat. I'm just going to call him Batman. Sure. Uh, And so (laughs) we're about to follow them to the hotel room uh, or to the hotel. We're in our car and uh, Richard leans over to me and he goes, we're about to go home with Batman. And I'm like, no, that, that is Batman. And <laughs> like, well, what? it's nice to hear someone has said, a good Val Kilmer story. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not, well, I will tell you this, that this particular guy, I will, I will give you a clue that doesn't totally reveal him. Uh, so, so I, I, again, so I'm, I'm, 53. So I grew up in the seven, you know, in elementary school, I was in the seventies or yeah, in elementary school, it was the seventies. And so there was books like uh, little magazines, like team beat that would have all the hot guys on mm-hmm. the front. And this guy was on the cover of my team beat magazines when I was in elementary school. Gotcha. Gotcha. Not one of that's the Cassidy your, brothers, your- but one of their, their ilk. <laughs> <laughs> I am not, I'm not telling. No, no. But, I a- figured. Anyway, uh, if any anytime I get to mention Sean Cassidy in particular, but David Cassidy, sure, I take the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he's like, "How do you know that? How do you know that?" And I, I just, you know, it, swingers—they're getting a little bit better. But back in two thousand three, they 
they were very heteronormative in the sense that, you know, the women were bisexual, but the men were very straight. Mm -hmm. And at this party, all these men kept on buying this person drinks. So it's like in in this setting, men wouldn't be buying men drinks unless it was some kind of celebrity or something like that. And so, yeah, so that's how I figured out who it was. But anyway, so we had a great night. And at that point, they heard our story and they were like, oh, honey. And they helped us out. They got us on a better website and basically everything turned around. Like all of a sudden we were going to parties at these mini mansions and hanging out with these really amazing humans and really it only took a year to go from you know the orange van and the green carpet (laughs) to hanging out at mini mansions and having this amazing time and dressing up in all these amazing outfits and and making all these epic friends and all that so it really only took a year yeah and um which is again remarkable you know how quickly things can change and when you're just not sort of dead set against something if it right. aligns with you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought for a second. Um, well, while you're thinking, I can tell you the second story. Oh, please. You like. Thank you. That's that's what I was looking for. I appreciate that, Kate. <laughs> so, okay. So we started in Swing Lifestyle in 2003. And um, so it was about, I think, 2007-ish that a second event happened very similar to the first Mm -hmm. now before i tell you this event just know that i am a very assertive gal because it's going to sound like between these two stories it's going to sound like i was the one who was just dragged around everywhere or whatever (laughs) you know uh and if you just look at these two yeah it's going to seem like that but i very much played a role in how things unfolded in our non-monogamous relationship as well but this is another time i was blindsided blindsided where uh again richard was like i have something to talk to you about um and we had just gotten married like we had just gotten married i think it was a month into being married Mm -hmm. and he said so kate being in the swing lifestyle isn't going to work anymore (laughs) um uh i i think now we need to be polyamorous uh I'm going to start a new company called Dirty Dolly Photography. I'm going to be gone half of every month doing erotic photography for lifestyle couples. Uh, Denise, or uh, yeah, I could say her. For, okay, Denise is going to be my makeup artist. She's also going to be my lover. Uh, and why don't you date her husband? And I'm just like, what, what, what? <laughs> now, let me ask also, when you, got, when you got married, did you expect to just continue as things were? Did you have any of that kind of sometimes uh, ingrained marriage thoughts of, oh, I guess maybe we'll be changing something or any of that stuff before this great shock? Uh, um, well, I mean, I knew who I was married to, but yeah, I thought we... I still, like almost every human, have a tendency to project my nature onto other people at times. Sure. And in my mind, we had this down to a science. We were like the general pattern of swingers. <laughs> like we we would have, you know, a party about once a month. Mm-hmm. And we didn't usually, if we went to a party, we usually didn't play. We would just go to socialize. But we would have a party about once a month and we would hand select the people that even got to go to the party. And then the people that actually got to go to the back bedroom, 
they were also very much hand selected. <laughs> right. And so like it was like we were very much control freaks about like <laughs> executing the most epic parties and all of that. Right. Yeah. And we were phenomenal at it. So why would we change what isn't broken? Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but in his mind, he realized he's he's an artist. He's He's been this great creative since he was a little boy. And he's just reinvented himself when it came due. Like when he needed to reinvent himself, he did it. And this was one of these moments. And it was the first time that I had been present for that moment, even though he, he'd, he'd always done that. Sure, it's like, sure. okay, what what I'm doing creatively isn't working. So now I'm going to switch gears and be an erotic photographer for the lifestyle. Right. And, and that's what he did. And it was um, for a long time, it was phenomenally successful until I the iPhone came out and kind of screwed things up for photographers. Sure. But uh, yeah. And at, Denise ended up being like one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. I actually did try and date her husband for a, a while briefly because he was a cat. That's one thing about Richard. He'd always, he, he was pretty much a straight guy, but he definitely... He loved musicals, and he could pick out a really <laughs> handsome, good catch of a, of a guy. He, he yeah. did. He did have really good judgment, and so I did date her husband briefly. Um, but that that beginning was really hard because mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and a lot of people wouldn't understand that. A lot of people who are monogamous might be like, "What's the difference between swing lifestyle and poly?" But as soon as you're poly, now you're opening the door for love. You're basically, you know, for people who don't know, you know, the swing lifestyle, you're sexually non-monogamous, but you're emotionally monogamous. Right. So a lot of swing lifestyle people think poly people are just, you know, crazy pants, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're like playing with fire. What if they yeah. fall in love with somebody else? And poly people would be like, that's the freaking point, you know? Right. Um, is, is to, you know, have more love. And that doesn't mean that any relationship will dissipate because you love this other person, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I think that's good to get um, out there too because I think it can be confusing for people with the different terms and all that. Right, right. And these days with websites like Field, F-E-E-L-D, um, a lot of those social norms are actually breaking down because it used to be back in the day, most of the non-monogamous dating sites uh, actually were so built up that they were almost like their own online community complete with norms and values and 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 the way people dressed everything like sure. i could i could be at the movie theater and point out who the swingers were just by how they were dressed <laughs> what, you know? what what would be the outfit that would give it away around that time uh the men would be wearing an affliction shirt <laughs> his his hair would be gelled up uh-huh he would be wearing the cowboy boots that just kept on going out and like were pointed and then like not normal cowboy boots. They, they're way more sleek and they go out and they're and, and more pointed at the top. Yeah. Um, sometimes the affliction pants as well. Um, the people that we knew, they were usually all gym rats. Uh -huh. So like super butt, buff and fit. The female, it's almost, it could almost be a, a Barbie and Ken, yeah. like swinger Barbie and Ken. <laughs> You know, like <laughs> not a bad product line for anyone out there who's looking to get into. <laughs> <laughs> the, the female, a lot of times, has a lot of fake parts back then, you know, like the boob job. And uh, usually they're both tan. And, um, you know, a nice George uh, Hamilton tan. Yeah, leaning that way. Mm. Yeah. 
So, um, and a lot of times she's very thin, like she might be a size four, that uh-huh. kind of thing. You know, that, that was, I mean, these days, even back then there was a lot of diversity, mm. but a lot of the people we knew were like that. And that's actually what eventually kind of broke things apart. Like I, I would sometimes say to Richard, cause I would sometimes say to Richard, I, I think these are the same people that beat you up in high school. And he's like, and he's like, what are, what are you talking about? And, you know, he's like, you're just being, you're just complaining a lot. Um, but then when we got on Facebook and we saw that a lot of these people were trash talking and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about all people in the swing lifestyle, that these were some of the people that we were hanging out with. Sure. You know, they were like trash talking people that are homeless and stuff like that. It was at that point that we kind of made this switch in terms of who we hung out with. Right. You know, but there is that. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm trashing the swing lifestyle because I still have a lot of friends in the swing lifestyle. But there is that quadrant of the swing lifestyle that can be very um, liberal in this you know, one area. And then very sort of, uh, I hate to say conservative because it's too nice of and pleasant of a word, but too heartless in other areas. Uh, yeah, they can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I never met any swing lifestyle people that were, let's, let's put it this way. There were certain people that we met that they would do everything for you and their family because you're in their inner circle. But if you're outside of their circle and you're suffering or, you know, you're different than them, mm-hmm. then they they are not there for you if you're right. outside of that or outside of their values. Right. You yeah. know, so um, anyway, there, there was just a certain point that we realized, I guess in, the best way to put it is we just realized that they had different values than us, you know, because, we, you know, we're very liberal, progressive couple. Um, and that was also part of the reason we started to switch towards being more and more poly. But I was talking about field. I kind of lost my track there. Um with field f-e-e-l-d that dating site there isn't all these chat rooms and things like that that form social norms and so everyone's on there from the burners to the swingers to you name it like you know um everyone's on there and because of i think that's part of the reason along with the fact that you know when you think about what's going on with uh gender like all these rigid norms are breaking down and Mm -hmm. we're becoming more fluid within certain circles in the United States, right? Yeah. Like certain circle, you know? And so you see the same thing within non-monogamy where on the left-hand side, you may have your swing lifestyle folks. On the right-hand side, you may have a whole bunch of poly people living in a family, in a house, raising a whole bunch of kids. And in between there, you've got a million hybrids. Right. You know, like people that sometimes play at the play party, but both have a boyfriend and girlfriend or what have you on the side um so the play party looks like the swing lifestyle the plane separately starts to look like poly right so you see all these hybrids these days yeah and now earlier you mentioned coming home from the first years of working uh in therapy and working with sexually abused kids and i'm wondering how you developed the ability to shut off at the end of the day because i imagine you still deal with some stuff that weighs heavy on the mind and uh it has to be part of your um if not coping, uh, just day-to-day life to be able to detach from the stuff that you talk about at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for for me, I'm a bit of a weirdo. So not all therapists are the same regarding this. Like I've worked with a lot of therapists that 
they take on their client's stuff and they have a hard time letting it go. Um, that can happen to me, but it's rare hmm. for me. And I've described what I do to other therapists and they're like, I, and they look at me though. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Kate, <laughs> but I'll describe it to you. Yes, please. Um, when, and I don't have to do this anymore, but for years as a new therapist, I would take in another person's emotional content. I'd feel it in my body. That would help me know what to say next. And then I'd let it go kind of like a, a cycle going in and out of me. Um, at a certain point, I didn't really need to do that to know what to say next because I've been a therapist for so long. Now, even when I worked at the Grossman Burn Center working with a lot of times little teeny munchkins that had little children that had been burned and they look like, you know, they're just wrapped up like a little Stay puff marshmallow and I'd go over there and do art therapy with them. Mm -hmm. um, people were like, how can you do that work? You know, um, that's not the stuff that would get to me. The stuff that would get to me, honestly, was like, especially that place that I already mentioned, uh, a place called Children's Institute International, where you're working with kids that have been uh, sexually abused. Yeah. And a lot of them are low socioeconomic status. So even if, you know, say you get to a point where you need to make a, uh, a report, mm -hmm. uh like, so now let's say they end up in the foster care system. A lot of times in the foster care system, they're also being sexually abused. So it's like, especially with low socioeconomic status folks, there was just this feeling of like, how I don't, I'm not hearing any way to save this child. Right. And so, and oh, by the way, I'm new at being a therapist. So my little bag of tricks as a therapist is small at that point. Sure. That, and so, you know, back then, you know, again, back 2003, 2004, all I do is try and be the best I could for that child while they were in my presence. Um, and sometimes I just come home just sobbing, crying. Yeah. So, you know, children being sexually abused is, you know, or is, is definitely uh, a hard one for me. I work with adults now. Um, it's not to say that I wouldn't work with kids, but I think people see my website and they're not, they're, they're not like, this is the person I'm going to take my kids to, you know, cause yeah. I'm very open on my website that I, who I specialize in sure. and, and all of that. Every now and then I'll get somebody who identifies as non-monogamous or what have you that will bring their uh, child to me. But that is really rare. Like years go by. Sure. You know? Yeah. I think I was more thinking about that ability to switch off and be able to keep the, stuff at the office at the office etc but i imagine that it's not quite the same thing like you said now as it would be then um and i'm curious what led you down the path of becoming a therapist initially um you know i think i was being trained to be a therapist in elementary school you know uh as i said my grandfather was head of the educational psych department at mm -hmm. the university of alabama when i came home in elementary school my mom was working on getting her master's degree so she was at home working on her thesis a lot of times when i I'd, I'd come home and if i came home and said you know that i was being bullied or something like that she would sit down with me on the front sofa mm -hmm. and not just empathize with me but explain to me why someone might be a bully so I was learning to put myself in other people's shoes and have empathy for them, even when I was upset with them mm. from the time I was in elementary school. 
Yeah, it's quite a good skill to have. Yeah, I was really surprised when I went into my private practice. Again, I'd been a therapist for uh, 10 years when I went into my private practice to find out that a lot of times people didn't have empathy and compassion unless they experienced the exact same thing. I'd see that with my couples. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, it was, I was slow to see that because I wasn't working with couples before that. And like if I had a non-monogamous uh, couple and one person started before the other one, then the one that had started first sometimes didn't have any empathy for the person that's witnessing it mm-hmm. because they, they haven't gotten a lover yet. And then right. once they get a lover, then they're experiencing the jealousy and then they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Now I know what this feels like. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And I would just be blown away. I'm like, why, why, why can't you put yourself in your, their shoes before that happens? Because, you know, like I said, I was being trained to do that in elementary school and I didn't realize, I thought everybody worked that way. I've been a therapist for 10 years and I thought that most people had more of an ability to have empathy than yeah. than uh, a lot of times they do. I was shocked to see that over and over again. Not to say everybody's like that, but oh, there's sure, a lot but of people that are yeah. like that. Now, do you think that some people choose not to have empathy or they just aren't uh, attuned to it? I think there's a lot of different things going on. I think, um, you know, when we talk about neurodiversity, we have a tendency to think, okay, there's the neurotypical people and then the neurodiverse people are your folks with Asperger's or autism. But I think it's way more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And there are areas of the brain that are devoted to compassion. And if you have been raised in a household that isn't teaching you compassion, then you are not growing those neural connections in the brain. Yeah. You know, those neural connections just are, are weak. Right. And so literally on a, a neural circuitry level, there's going to be some people that are way more developed in terms of their empathy and compassion than other people, you know? And I don't think we have a tendency to think about it from the level of the brain. Right. We have a tendency to just think, oh, well, that person's a jerk and that person's kind, and they're making a decision about that. But that's one level. And then the other level is, is you know, how you grew up in your family. And then there's a, the societal impact. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about, like, again, going back to the self-entitled grandiose narcissist or whatever, you know, we could talk about, I think when you're, you're talking about someone with narcissism, you could split it into two camps, the ones that grew up in rich households and the ones that are poor. Obviously, there's more than that, but there is a distinction. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you think about the one that grew up in the wealthy household, they were probably kind of taught certain things. One, that it's a just world. And so if there are people that are suffering, it's because they're, they're, you know, they're weak. Or if a woman was raped, she was wearing a short skirt, you know, just world theory. And that's, that's why we have it so good is because it's a just world and we're we're amazing. Yeah. Right? And then always fanning the superiority uh, aspect of it because when there's money you can do that sort of thing. Right, right. And not given any kind of love or taught how to love or how to receive love, but instead again given the narcissistic fuel of that second Ferrari or whatever when you're 16, mm-hmm. you know, that that kind of thing. And so that person uh is not only not being taught empathy and compassion, but a lot of times probably being taught that those who are empathetic and compassionate are weak. Right. You know, and that's going to show up in their relationships. And then there's a societal level where like in America, like all the shows that we love best 
have a heavy sociopathic element. I mean, some people are going to hate me for saying this, but like Game of Thrones. I mean, that it's like like almost everybody on that show could be said to have some sociopathy, like <laughs> most of them. You know? Yeah. I thought you were going to say Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, but I mean, the same thing, same thing. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, I I tend to sometimes watch some shows that are, you know, filmed in other countries because, you know, like if you watch, um, uh, oh, what what is it called? There's a a new non-monogamous movie that was filmed by the BBC, but it's on HBO. Oh, what is it called? I want to say Triangle, but that's not it. Trigonometry. That's it. Trigonometry? Trigonometry. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah and uh you know is it's you know it's about this couple that take in a a roommate just to have some extra money and then they're they're a monogamous couple and then what unfolds they end up having this you know they all fall in love with each other Mm -hmm. right but that whole show it's a good example where nobody is an asshole there's no sociopathy yeah there's and it's completely captivating but that's rare a lot of times in American filmmaking. Um, sometimes you have to really search on Netflix and HBO to find something that's just a kind show that doesn't use that as a way to keep people's attention. Right. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people misunderstand things like The Wolf of Wall Street is somehow celebrating that life or that guy, which to me, it's a very, very serious uh, repudiation of that sort of thing. But you mentioned, yeah. you also mentioned, um, the other side of the coin with narcissists or the other type of narcissist, poor narcissist. Could you outline that a little bit? Because I think that that is not talked about as much because a lot of people know, you know, oh, they, the people who control with money, you know, and all of that. But this other aspect is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So before I talk about that, I'll just oh, yeah. say that when we're always watching that stuff on TV, it does impact us we think it doesn't but it does and then it impacts how we relate in our relationships you know where we tend to feel like we're more powerful that we're right that we're good if we're operating in a a dominator way you know we we live in a dominator culture and it shows up in all the different ways in terms of misogyny racism uh trying to dominate our partner etc and so on you know yeah and, yeah. we, and we can go to the poor narcissist thing in a sec because I want to follow on from what you just said. Uh, I think that's also part of the ingrained role play, if you will, in life that is uh, causing a lot of suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when you read a book like Wired for Love, um, that's one of the main things he's doing is just saying that we are little like our brains are literally wired for war, mm-hmm. you know, in relationships, we treat each other like adversaries and we have to really like literally rewire our brains for love, yeah. which, you know, a lot of times in relationships, we're, especially if we have an anxious ambivalent attachment style, we're scanning for what's wrong. We did that, you know. It, it, the thing is, the person that survived back in the day, you know, you know, long, long ago was the anxious person. They're the ones that didn't get eaten by the bear or the tiger. So there's a lot of us are anxious people. We're the one we're the descendants of these anxious people. And so we're always scanning for what's wrong. But if we're always scanning for what's wrong in, the, in a relationship, again, that's that's more being wired for war and discord. Right. Whereas yeah. you can start to rewire your brain by instead scanning for gratitude and telling your partner when you are grateful for them saying it out loud doing it all day as a practice 
I think sometimes people get uh, this notion that they're being too mushy or too sentimental or even love bombing by doing that because that, that, you know, vocabulary is now part of the, uh, rather that it's gone into the vocabulary. But I think that expression of gratitude in any form is really uh, the way to go because Mm -hmm. otherwise if you're not addressing it or just, well, they know, maybe they don't know, (laughs) you got to tell them. Right. And and I also think it's so important to mindfully, you know, watch the Kate show, mindfully watch the Craig show. Like, how is your brain operating? Yeah. Because, you know, it's like your mind is not you. The mind is a, is a horrible master and a wonderful servant, you know. So when you watch your, your mind and how it works, is it perseverating on negative things? Is it spinning on being critical to self or others? These, you know, uh, these are all signs that your brain's not working in the in the ideal way. Yeah. And these are all signs that you need to be uh, instilling a daily gratitude practice. And I'm not talking about putting a list on your refrigerator and forgetting about it. I'm talking about all day long, you know, not getting into a fight with your brain when when you have the critical thought of somebody that doesn't look the way you think they should or act or whatever. Not getting into a fight with that just again, watching the Kate or the Craig show and going, oh, okay, that, that could have been better. Now, now let's shift over here. And, and what am I grateful for? You know, California is beautiful. Look at the sun going through the palm tree leaves and the, you know, and the wind shifting the light and how gorgeous that is. It can be something very simple that's in front of you and you're just retraining your brain and what starts out as work ends up being how you're wired. Yeah. And I like, uh, you mentioned in the book about, um, the reverse of discomfort tolerance. I can't remember what it's called uh, in the uh, DBT books uh, about, is, is it discomfort? I can't remember. But uh, discomfort tolerance, but you mentioned the um, joy tolerance and how a lot of us have difficulty accepting mm-hmm. the good things. And and that's also yeah. kind of ingrained as well. Would you like to speak on that for a moment? Yeah, um, so positive affect tolerance. It's like most of us, um, especially in TV and films, when we watch action and adventure stars, etc., we are told that we should re- should respect someone that can tolerate a lot of bad things, like the action star that gets shot with bullets fifty times, but somehow still gets up and he's still fighting. Right? You yeah. Know? Um, what we so we never even think about positive affect tolerance, and we assume that we can that we can tolerate all the yumminess in life, right? Why wouldn't we be able to? But in actuality, the more you have a hard backstory, the more you're likely to struggle with positive affect tolerance. And so positive affect tolerance is literally just being able to take in the yumminess of life and enjoy yummy moments and happy moments. And it's not like um you know, when you think of like a mixing board yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's not like all the, the, faders. the um, knobs on, I don't know what they're called. Oh, it's okay. the faders, knobs. knobs. Yeah. yeah did, I just, I was trying to help, but, uh, yeah, yeah. The, um, it's not like they're all locked together. Right. So in other words, you may have high positive affect tolerance and be able to tolerate someone saying that you're a badass at your job. But if somebody were to say that you had a beautiful physique or, or figure, that may be a niche sweater for you. You know, it's like, it, it, it depends, you know, so uh, it's noticing for some people, even accepting a compliment feels like an itchy sweater that they want to throw across the room. Yeah. You know? Um, and so within non-monogamy, this becomes problematic because, well, 
it, within love, it becomes problematic because if, if getting a compliment feels like an itchy sweater you want to throw across the room, then how are you going to be able to tolerate the big epic love? And how are you going to be able to tolerate having more than one lover who really digs you? Sure. You know, when you get to a place where your positive affect tolerance is hitting a threshold, a, a wall, you may unconsciously look away from that person. You may sabotage. You may start a fight. You know, I've known people with low positive affect tolerance that, um, you know, had a hard time with their birthdays. And so they were always sabotaging their birthday. Or some people, it can even skew to ruining other people's good time where they don't have much positive affect tolerance. So when, if they're dating someone and they know that person loves their freaking birthday and it's like they wait all year for their birthday, when that birthday comes along, they're going to find some way to screw it up, you know? Yeah. And it's not like an evil villain. It's not like it's like they're, they're you know, taking their little mustache and... <laughs> <laughs> Waxing it up. <laughs> ah, and, yeah. <laughs> Waxing the, the... Yeah, it's not like they're, they're going, ah, ha, ha, I'm going to sabotage you. It's all very subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a lot of people struggle with this. I mean, for me, I've been working on my positive affect tolerance, um, for a very long time. I know where it gets hit. Um, like for, for me, if I go to Agape, which is this spiritual center in, in, uh, California, and it's, it's not a normal spiritual center. Like for instance, they'll break into, uh, they have a million musicians on stage and they'll break into uh funkadelic or they've uh-huh. had a singer singing metallica on stage but yeah. in a very sweet gospely kind of way you know like <laughs> it's not a normal spiritual center but the first time i went there um there was a point where they uh if you're a new member they're like okay raise your hand and you, kind of like in rocky horror picture show when you're a newbie right, <laughs> right. kind of like that so you raise your hand and and all of a sudden everybody around you is um saying the series of things to you that is super duper sweet and it and and it all feels sincere it does not feel phoned in and you can look at their eyes and tell that these people really want the best for you and every time it'll make me cry if i go there i've only been there like six times even when i witness someone else i'll cry for them yeah like just witnessing it and it's it's hitting a positive affect tolerance wall like to receive, I, I grew up in the South where there would be some, you know, red faced preacher telling you that you're going to hell and everybody's stiff and tight and looking at their knees to that. That's, yeah. that's way beyond what I'm used to. <laughs> it's quite a jump. And even when you have the intention of enjoying all the yumminess in life, it can be a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I've gotten to the point where, I mean, my life is pretty abundant i have amazing friends and you know i've had an amazing life where i know and notice it showing up is in the nuance where sometimes not always but on some occasions like if i'm dating someone and they say something extra sweet i'll look away before i even told my chin to look away or you know say something that breaks the yummy moment yeah and it's almost my body reacts almost as if you know somebody jumped around the corner and said, boo, and you jump and go, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's almost that fast. And there's literally been moments where I've caught myself. And have you ever like in your car, you're going a direction and all of a sudden you're having to change your car's direction really fast. Yeah. It's really awkward. And you, you know, it's like that where I'm like trying to pull out of turning away <laughs> and the partner and the person is probably like, what the hell is going on right now? <laughs> but it's interesting when you are able to catch yourself 
enough in time to look back up, mm -hmm. a lot of times you'll see somebody having a little mini, like low grade heartbreak. Do you remember on that Simpsons episode with, um, what is it? Is it Sally? Now I'm forgetting my Simpsons characters. Anyway, she's in a movie theater mm -hmm. and she has this little boy that has a crush on her and she lets him know that she doesn't like him. And they do the slow-mo and then okay. you see his heartbreaking. Yeah. It's a little bit like that where you just see someone's face fall. Sure. And, and I think like, I've been on either side of that. It, 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 it's interesting because especially say if you're in an, in an anxious place or whatever with the relationship or something, or the other person might be in an anxious place. I found that is a funny thing that will make me spin out because you think, oh, wait, do they not like me as much anymore? You know, there's like that yeah. little voice that'll come. I'm sure the little voice is different for everyone in every situation, but, and that's sort of an overgeneralization, but. Yeah, but the other day, this is random, but the other day I was at the MAC cosmetic counter and there was a guy there, um, you know, just he very pretty, you know, uh, very effusive. And how should I put it? He was hitting my positive affect tolerance. He was just so full of joy. Yeah. You know, and he was like, can I help you? And even before I could stop myself, I was just like, no, I'm fine. And then I, I'm still looking and he's and I see his face fall. He goes and helps some other people. And I was like damn it, Kate, you just did it. And so I just went up to him and, and I asked for his help. And so he ended up doing all this makeup on me. And while he's doing makeup, I ended up telling him, I said, I'm a psychotherapist. I've been working on my positive affect tolerance. This is what it means. This is what happened in that moment. Oh, that's really and great. I'm, and we ended up having this great conversation. He's like, I'm so, so, I'm so glad you told me that. And that happens to me sometimes. And that feels so good that you that you explain that to me. And it, it just ended up being kind of a healing experience for both of us, I think. I think that's a good uh, note too for people listening. Like if you do have something that happens, it doesn't mean that you have to carry on with whatever it is. Like you can catch things and also just say to someone, whether it's your partner or friend or someone at Mac Cosmetics, hey, listen, sorry, <laughs> this was like, you know, this just happened because you can have a wonderful moment with whoever it is. Right, right. I mean, once you're aware of it and you and you get to the point where you can explain it, yeah, you can just say that to somebody and and one, they usually a lot a lot of times people don't even know about the concept. Sure. And so it ends up being something that they become aware of. Right. And um yeah, yeah, and it just becomes this reboot. It's all of a sudden you're hitting go again and they also feel closer to you because you just disclosed something that most people wouldn't disclose. <laughs> right. And it also yeah. dissolves the mystery of like, oh, why didn't they not like that? Or why do they act funny? That kind of thing. Yeah, there was this there was this one woman that I knew that was completely full of joy. She, she still is, you know, she's still around. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she's just she's just brimming over with joy. And I remember saying to her one time, I can't remember why it came up, but I said, I said to her, there's going to be times that people are mean to you and it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's the opposite. You're just, you're such a bright light and some people aren't going to be able to tolerate your bright light. And she immediately started to cry and she's like, you just explained something really important for me. Like, I always thought it was something wrong with me. I'm like, no, you're doing everything right. It's like, not, not everybody's going to be able to tolerate what a beautiful human you are. Right. You know? Which is an important thing and uh, often not discussed because people then people can think, oh, what's wrong with me? Why are they mad at me? And it's really right. this other thing because you're too good or too happy. 
Yeah. When, when they're being sincere, they're not being fake. You yeah. Know? It's just, yeah. 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 Now, yeah. It's interesting. It is. Uh, now I'm curious, what's your dating situation like now? You know, okay. So let me, and we still haven't, we still need to remember oh. to go back to the narcissist score at some point, but. We'll, well, yeah, we'll make a deal. We'll do, yeah, we'll do that. I was going to say we could do that now, but we're, you know, whatever you're, whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> um, I'll answer this question. So, okay. So first off, let's just say that I have had the kind of love and sex life that would make a busload of nuns weep. So <laughs> that's what we all aim for. <laughs> so you know like i said 11 year monogamous relationship 13 year non-monogamous relationship at the end of that non-monogamous relationship uh richard had a girlfriend that is now his wife and i had a boyfriend um and at that time we had both i he had been my boyfriend for just short of two years um that year that i asked for a divorce I ended up having a double breakup. Oh no. Um, yeah. Yeah. It ended up being, it was for the best, you mm. know? Uh, but when, when you're a person that has gone from living with your mom, almost straight to an 11 year relationship, then straight to a 13 year relationship, that's 24 years of my adult life. You can imagine that that person might want to just hang out with themselves for a bit. <laughs> yeah. You know? Absolutely. And, and so, uh, yeah. So when I, I asked for a divorce from my uh, husband and then in in uh, October of 2015, moved out in May of 2016, moved the boyfriend in, found out some things about the boyfriend once he moved in, moved him out <laughs> in August. So, uh, yeah. So then so about August of 2016 to now, I've been uh, kind of a dating cat lady. You know, mm-hmm. I I have had when you've had such long relationships, if you have a relationship for a year and a half, it, it almost feels like it doesn't count. Like it's it's just like a little blip in your mind in comparison to these long relationships. Yeah, it's so, like a Tic Tac I mean, or I, something. Yeah. 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 So I have had relationships that are up to, you know, a year and a half, but they they haven't I haven't like I haven't fallen in love yet or anything. I'm still. You know, and right now I'm I'm not dating anybody right now, but um, you know, I just started going on dates again. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, what happened was um, the year before the pandemic, I uh, had cancer for a year. Oh wow! So yeah, so from two six, so what was that? 2019. So from 2000, late 2016, 2019, I was just having fun dating. I dated. Uh, British music composer. I dated like uh, an amazing Jamaican artist. I dated uh, Australian that was this uh, photojournalist. He was a guy that would run towards the bomb to take the shot in oh. the Middle East. He, yeah. he was there for 10 years and came here because he thought he was going to die. Um, like I was dating like these epic <laughs> men, uh, you know, but so just when I was to the point of thinking, well, maybe I'll start looking for my partner. That's when I got cancer like the day after christmas oh my god i found out that i had cancer and so for two and a half months i didn't know the stage it turned out it was like baby t9c cancer and i was able to have um a couple surgeries but the main surgery was robotic and so my body is fine my sex life is fine everything is good um 
but that took out a year and then the pandemic happened. So now it's like all this time has passed where I've just been dating, but there's been some significant things that have gotten in the way. So I'm just now to the point where I'm looking for my partner because the way I am, it's kind of like with non-monogamy, I kind of have that anchor person. Mm -hmm. And once I have that anchor person, then together we kind of figure out what our relationship model is going to look like. So I'm kind of looking for that anchor person. Really, that just started about a month ago because I just decided I wasn't going to look for him until the book was out and the book was published April 19th. So I hit, I just recently hit the go button on that search. <laughs> That's good. And we're pretty yeah. much out of the pandemic, pretty much. So good. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of good things coming everyone's <laughs> way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's interesting. Like some, it's sometimes a little challenging for me to find the right person because there's some men that hear what I'm about, what I do for a living. And it's kind of like when you think about, um, you know, an amusement, at least here in the United States, when you go to an amusement park, you can get a fast pass to bypass the line and get to the front. <laughs> yeah. I think some men think I'm like this fast pass to the front of the line, and except that instead of the ride, it's a, you know an orgy or something yeah. like that. When really at this point, I'm pretty low key. There's a lot of things that are more important to me than yeah. that, and um, I'm really just you know looking for a really uh, noble man that's trying to make the world better in some way. A noble you know? slut, perhaps. Um, uh- to borrow some of the maybe terms. maybe i mean i'm very i'm just i'm pretty low-key at this point i'm yeah. definitely not monogamous but i'm not this chick that's going to the parties all the time like i was in my 30s either sure you know? yeah this is such a good phrase yeah. had to slip it in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> yes i do talk about the noble slut a lot uh yeah that's a whole conversation you yeah. know um you know so many men think they either have to be the the kind man who uh has a lot of friends or the douchebag at the gym that gets laid a lot. And there is the noble slut, the noble slut as a third option that a lot of people don't know about. The happier option, of course, if you want to know more about that, which of course you do, pick up Open Deeply by Kate Lurie. Available now at all respectable and some disreputable booksellers. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Yes. And if you uh, want to support your local bookstores, please do, you know, like uh, Skylight Books out here in LA. And also you mentioned your private practice. If people are looking for a therapist like yourself, what do you recommend that they do? Either look on your website or if they're looking for someone in their area, what steps do you recommend taking? Uh, My website is just my name, katelurie.com. So that's uh, Kate. And then the last name, L-O-R-E-E.com. And the link, of course, um, is in the episode description. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And um, I'm licensed in California. So um, so if you're a California resident living in California, then I am an option for you. <laughs> and uh, just to circle back to the poor narcissist, the type of narcissist we don't hear as much about, would you mind outlining that real quick before we um, depart? Yeah, I I think that's more tricky. You know, I I think that, um, you know, when you're thinking about somebody who's very poor, it may be that, uh, you know, like like say a a typical, you know, example where you have a mom, uh, a single mom or a single parent that is working really long hours. So your mom is just or your parent is just doing the best they can, but they're not around enough to give you a lot of love. And maybe you, you're just trying to survive. And so, you know, you end up maybe 
hanging out with people that are really reinforcing the idea of um, emotions get in the way and we need to survive and we need to, you know, hustle. We need to be a hustler um, in order to survive. And then that whole zeitgeist that is around that yeah. really doesn't have anything to do be, with being soft, you know, soft, you know, being soft is considered a weakness and um, having a lot of money, a fancy car, hot partners becomes the objective. And if you allow yourself to be compassionate and empathetic, then, you know, you can be in circles that basically tell you that, um, that you're going to be taken advantage of and that you're a chump. Yeah. You know, and so it's a little bit different than what you experience in, in rich communities where they're just, you know, being told, well, you know, we're the third generation of a man, amazing, fancy people that, you know, uh, I don't know, sold cars or tobacco or whatever the thing is, yeah. you know, that there's this lineage where they feel proud of how they've dominated, you know, it, there's similarities, but it's, it's different. And one comes from privilege and one comes from the opposite side of dominator culture. I mean, it, what's interesting is it both comes from dominator culture. Right. It's just one is dominator culture through the lens of the privilege and the those who dominate, and one and the other is through the lens of people that are underprivileged and are just trying to seek domination and survive as they can. You right. Know? And ideally, we could eventually, hopefully, someday arrive at coexisting culture. Yeah. That'd yeah. be nice. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. We would have to get to a point where we feel safer and, um, you know, and we value something other than dominator culture, which shows up in so many different ways. Well, the most you know? we could do is just try to do our part and you're doing your part by doing the, the work that you do at the book. And I, I want to thank you, Kate, for joining me. And I also want to thank Lenora Claire who connected us. Yeah, I love Lenora Claire. And if you uh, want to support her efforts, you know, she's always looking to uh, advocate for people that are being stalked and change legislation. She's got website websites out there um, where you can reach out to her and, and, and help those endeavors. And know. Lenora is an upcoming guest on the show. So I'm excited about that. And I uh, hope yeah. to chat to you again someday about uh, another topic, similar topics, different book, whatever kind of thing. Yes, I, I'm always here to come on as a guest. I, I've really enjoyed my time with you, and um, you have a great podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a delight talking with you. Kate's book, Open Deeply, is available now at all the good shops and the bad ones, and also available through a link in this episode description. On January 17th, the Craig and Friends Presents Cinema Series kicks off, premieres with... William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A. on 35mm. Joining me is none other than the fabulous Wang Chun for a live podcast taping immediately following the film. Get your tickets now. Link is in the episode bio. 